Heads up, horror fans. Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening to Confessions of a Final Girl. Hello, everyone. Happy October. Thank you so much for listening. I am Molly, and before I jump into tonight's topic, which is Misery from 1990, I have a little confession to make. The children are wandering through the wilderness of sin these days, Mrs. Nell. It has been so many weeks since I have been able to sit down and record an entry. Suffice it to say, a lot has happened. I thought briefly during my time away about stepping back and waiting until things had calmed down a little bit in my work life and my living situation became a little more conducive to an audio project. One positive thing that came out of this impromptu hiatus was I realized how much I really missed doing this. And then I received some unexpected and overwhelmingly positive feedback from an old friend about my prom night episode. I can't express how much I appreciated that. And it really made me stop and think, what the hell am I doing? I cannot remember enjoying something quite as much as I have enjoyed this project. I'm sitting here talking about horror movies with you guys. It is the most fun that I have had in ages. Why would I want to put that on hold? It's led to me reprioritizing. I have met with my scheduling manager at work and we were able to settle on a schedule that will still provide me with what I need to pay my rent and my bills, but will also allow me a little bit more freedom to focus on this particular project. I didn't realize when I first started recording these entries and posting them on Anchor just how much I was going to enjoy doing it. I mean, I haven't even been confident enough to refer to Confessions as a podcast, which I think it's safe to say that that's exactly what it is. But I called it an audio blog because, I don't know, it was less pressure because I was afraid if I started referring to it as a podcast that that would mean that it was real. I don't know, it's hard to explain, but if I want to make the time to do it, I'll make the time. So I have a couple of what, for me, are pretty exciting announcements regarding this podcast. So be sure to stay tuned until the end of this episode for those. And I was so grateful to my friend that I invited him to join me for what, for me, is a very new podcasting experience. uh, And he agreed. So he will be joining me tonight to talk about Misery. He is is, as I said, my oldest friend, easily one of my dearest friends. Now, we recorded this discussion remotely using Skype, so the audio quality is about to change dramatically right here in the middle of my introduction of him. (laughs) An exceptionally talented stage actor, a culinary genius, and a fellow aficionado of the horror genre, he is Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Molly. I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) Me too. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for listening to my silly little audio blog and liking it and making me realize that I'm a moron. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. If you ever need reminding that you're a moron, just please give me a call. Oh, for sure. You're the first person I call. (laughs) Yes, that's I. That makes me feel special. (laughs) So Bruce and I have known each other for what did we what did we determine? It's like 24 years. Well, if you count the fact that we met on the phone through your stepbrother before we actually met, it's closer to 28. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Maybe like 27 or 26, because I think I was 12. Yeah, wow. So, yeah. Bruce and I have always shared a mutual love of horror films. Years ago, along with my friend Anthony, who I've mentioned in previous episodes, we all co-hosted a double feature night at my apartment in Ohio. We had some really great times. We threw a lot of themed nights, and I distinctly remember Bruce showing up to one of those parties as Kathleen Turner in Serial Mom. Oh, yeah. Uh, And I love it. You were holding up that, uh, you made the... 
ransom note. You even t- yeah. took and like cut out all the little letters and it said, I'll get you pussy face. It's like one mm-hmm. of my favorite pictures is that picture of you from that night. That was a That was a fun night. I think that my other favorite night was when I, it was the musical night where I made everybody watch Repo the Genetic Opera and Sweeney Todd. Yes. And we dressed up as homicidal med students. Yes. That's one of my favorite pictures. Really fun times. The last couple of years that I spent in Ohio before moving back to Nebraska, they were very difficult years for me. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but this is my audio blog. So if ever there were a place for me to share my feelings, this, this is it. But I, I did. I had a very hard time in Ohio. Something really great came out of that time as well, which was that Bruce and I were able to reconnect. And we spent so much time together. Those memories that I have of those horror movie nights in particular, like the one we had at your house where we watched popcorn. And I don't think about the shit that I went through in Ohio when I reflect on it now. I just think about those memories and you were such a huge part of those. So what we're here to talk about tonight is Misery. I know why Misery is one of my favorite films. I wanted to ask you, Bruce, why do you love Misery? Well, without saying her name aloud, (laughs) because I don't want some college professor of hers to hear this and go back and do some research and find out that I wrote one of my sister's papers. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) What the assignment was, and I'm going to kind of go a little off track, but I promise we're going to come back around. No, that's fine. This was not how I expected this story to begin, and I'm I'm quite, I'm thrilled. So she had this paper, and it was not, by all means, not a hard paper to write. But the, the assignment was to compare classic literature to a more modern literature and you know do the the compare and contrast thing and i had just gotten done reading arabian nights which you know includes a thousand and one tales of Sherazade. and in a thousand and one tales of Sherazade, she is making up these stories she's telling them to the uh to the vizier or whoever it is that she's telling him to, I don't remember. But she's telling him these stories to distract him so that she can try to get away. And so having just read that, and for some reason having picked up the book Misery right after that, it's really a modern retelling of that. Paul Sheldon is writing the story the whole time so that he can try to get away from Annie Wilkes. This is just my take. Because I read one book and then picked up the other one was like, oh my God, have I slipped into some, you know, like alternate dimension where books are all the same story? You know, (laughs) That's why I like Misery so much. Plus, I've always just been a huge Stephen King fan. One of the first big books that I read that wasn't geared towards teenagers and children was The Stand. Yeah, that was my first that was my first experience with Stephen King. Mine was not a good one. Um, oh. so I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad you had a good experience. I talked about Stephen King. I've been making a joke about this since I started this podcast, because my first episode, I talked a lot about Stephen King's It. And then I also talked, I think, in the next episode about my favorite summertime horror films, the first of which was Cujo. And so it kind of became a running joke with myself that I didn't start a horror podcast. I just started a Stephen King adaptation podcast. So the fact uh, that I asked you to talk about it just caps it? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. It's like, okay. But one of the times that I mentioned the the King adaptations, I think it was in the It episode, I talked about my relationship with Stephen King as an author and how difficult it was for me to appreciate him for many, many years because my first attempt at reading a King novel was The Stand when I was, I think, 11. Reading that book is difficult enough, I think, but trying to read it when you're 11 years old, I was really overwhelmed and confused and I, I, I hated it. And I grew up kind of thinking that that was, that was King, that he he was just this very verbose, unnecessarily detail-oriented author. And well, um, you're not wrong. <laughs> 
I yeah, love but, Stephen King, and I will admit that. Yeah, so. it's endearing now, though. I learned that when I read it, finally. His attention to detail actually can really help uh, solidify, flesh out and solidify the world, the universe that he's created. And I appreciate that much more about him. Still haven't read The Stand, though. I can't do it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is. It's, it's a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> So back to Misery, I know that Stephen King was always a huge fan of this particular film as well. Notoriously picky as he was about the adaptations of his books. This was, I think Misery was always one of his favorites. I mean, there are little differences, but I want to say that when it comes to Misery, Mm -hmm. aside from a couple of things, it's one of the better adaptations when it comes to being faithful. I don't put a whole lot of stock into the Academy Awards personally. Um, But I do think that it's worth mentioning that Kathy Bates won the Oscar for Best Actress for her portrayal of Annie Wilkes in this film, which makes Misery the only Stephen King adaptation ever to win an Oscar. And it's also, you know, one of the few horror films to bring home an Academy Award as well, which a lot of horror fans will know. This genre is by far the most underrepresented by the Academy, as evidenced by Toni Collette not winning an Oscar for Best Actress for her performance in Hereditary. Not only that, though, but look at the special effects in that movie right great the little girl so good so good and for all of the not very much that she was in the movie amazing but the cinematography in that film that should have won yeah no it should have the score was also phenomenal everything about that film was oscar worthy and uh, another one and i could be wrong about this so i may have to actually apologize for this in a future confession but i'm also pretty sure that tilda swinton was not even nominated for her performance and we need to talk about kevin which she absolutely oh should God. have been i saw um, that movie for the first time last year and like okay you know that i don't talk during movies but i will quip every once in a while oh yeah i remember scream four i remember yes. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was dead silent from beginning to end mm-hmm. on we need to talk about kevin because that movie scared the shit out of me. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Kathy Bates brought it home. And I'm so glad that Goldman pushed for her because I can't imagine, I can't imagine anybody else in this role. So Misery uh, was released on November 30th, 1990. I want to say that I saw Misery for the first time a couple of years after that. I know I was living in Hamilton at the time. I I had to have been 11 or 12. Um, And I think I saw it on television with commercials and I'm sure probably a couple of things like language edited out. What about you? When did you see Misery for the first time? You know, I'm not really sure, but I know that my mom was there. My mom and I watched scary movies together from when I was very young. So it wouldn't have been anything she would have shied away from me watching. But I think that I saw it on like HBO or Showtime or something like that because mm-hmm. I don't re- think that there was any editing. But I could be remembering wrong. I remember being very taken aback by certain things that happened in the movie. So mm-hmm. It's one of those films, too, that I've noticed going back and watching it again. It's still very unsettling. Oh, yes. No, that definitely. So the film was directed by Rob Reiner, who I think Rob Reiner in particular to our generation is a precious director, (laughs) you know, because he gave us films like The Princess Bride and Stand By Me. This is Spinal Tap, When Harry Met Sally. Reiner directed a lot of films that are very specifically important to our generation. He directed Stand By Me? He did. It's another Stephen King adaptation. I I know. And we'll get this because it doesn't stop there. The film was produced in part by Castle Rock Entertainment, which Uh uh, was a company founded by Rob Reiner, uh, among others. And he named it after Castle Rock, Maine, 
one of the towns, you know, in which so many of Stephen King's stories take place. So, you know, I've seen the Castle Rock Entertainment logo so many times over so many years, and I had no idea that it was actually named for Castle Rock, Maine, nor did I know that it was a Rob Reiner company. I never Mm -hmm. put two and two together with that. Same. Castle Rock Entertainment also produced Needful Things, The Shawshank Redemption, Dolores Claiborne, which also stars Kathy Bates and The Green Mile, which are all Stephen King adaptations. So yeah, it's all kind of one big King family. Obviously, we've established many times now that um, Misery is a Stephen King adaptation. It was adapted by William Goldman, who also worked with Rob Reiner on The Princess Bride. The music for the film was done by Mark Shaman, who I was very surprised to learn also did the uh, music for both Adam's Family films, and he co-wrote the lyrics for John Waters' Hairspray. Misery stars James Caan as a disgruntled novelist, Paul Sheldon, struggling to reinvent himself after having written a lengthy series of very popular romance novels, and Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes, his number one fan. Diving right into the film, Misery opens with a black screen, accompanied by the sound of our protagonist, Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, plucking away at his typewriter. We fade in on a few close-up shots that establish his ritualistic nature. He has a filterless cigarette and a lone match kind of sitting by themselves, as well as an empty champagne glass, a bottle of champagne in a bucket of ice. Then we see an extreme close-up of what he is typing, which turns out to be the last line of a novel. The music is really sweet and simple here, with a few well-placed minor chords and Sheldon looks relatively happy. He adds the last pages to the now finished manuscript of what we learn is an untitled novel. And then he slides it into this really old, worn leather briefcase. And then he pops the champagne, pours himself a glass and lights up his cigarette. I personally really like the opening of Misery because Paul, as I mentioned, being a ritualistic or superstitious person, it's a very important aspect of his character, especially because in a way, one of the things that kind of hurts him the most throughout the film is his tendency toward routine uh, and his superstition. So I just thought that it was a really nice establishing, you know, first scene. Sheldon is writing his novel, we, we learn, at the Silver Creek Lodge in Colorado, and he's, he's checking out. He leaves the lodge and then climbs into his car. He hits a lengthy series of snowy roads with his manuscript in the passenger seat, and that's where our opening credits begin. The song that plays here is Shotgun by Junior Walker and the All-Stars, and I think that it, it's a really, it was a good choice because it kind of hammers home that sense of comfort and safety that surrounds Paul Sheldon. <laughs> So the driving through the mountains, the being jovial, every, everybody's happy because, you know, something great has happened or is about to happen is sort of also the opening of The Shining. Driving through the mountains and the yep. music is happy and go lucky. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into horror. You exactly. Know? It's the Colorado mountains even. Colorado <clears throat> is it, mountains oh, is it winter. the Colorado? That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because the overlook was there. He loves Stephen King loves his blizzards. Well, blizzards, you know, they happen. They, they, <laughs> they cause do. accidents. Uh, and that's when uh, Sheldon is driving and, you know, driving past and he can't see anything. And there's that sign and it's all like, the road's going to curve. Ah, you're going to die. And he's like, whatever. He loses control of the car. Um, I love that when he loses control of the car, he reaches over and like does a mom arm over his manuscript. <laughs> like, well, you know, authors. Well, exactly. Because <laughs> as a writer, that's absolutely what you would do. The soccer mom arm, though. I don't think helps too much. I mean, obviously it does because we see that the book itself is still intact with no broken limbs later in the movie. (laughs) Uh, The car, though, rolls down a hill, lands on its top. The music stops. 
then all you hear is the loud wind, the snowstorm. You hear that, and just you see the car, and it's already like down in the snow. You can't see it. Yeah. So, I love that too, where the wind is just it. The music cuts out, and all we hear is the blizzard. I thought that was really nice. So we have that shot of the car upside down in the snow, and suddenly we're back in time, and we're in the office of Paul Sheldon's agent, Marsha, played by the ever fabulous Lauren Bacall. And she's asking him about the leather briefcase. And he tells her a story about how he found it uh, going through things in a closet and he kind of forgot about it, but that he used to carry, um, well, he carried his first book around in that thing when he was shopping around for an agent. But it also kind of makes him sad because Sheldon doesn't really feel like a real writer. He got famous writing romance novels set in the 1800s. And to him, that's not real writing, which I totally get wanting to be taken seriously you know, I actually struggled with that when I was on YouTube, struggling with wanting to, what, what is your definition of success? What is your definition of art? And what do you do when you find that you have developed a career, built a career around something that is adjacent to your art, but not necessarily what you want to be doing? And especially because it's, you know, I, I'm older now, you're older now. And <clears throat> I'm not where I want to be. And even though Paul Sheldon is famous, people love him. People, you know, he's he's beloved as an author. It's not where he thought he would be. And so he feels like a failure. Mm-hmm, exactly. Even though he's not, I'm not, you're not. But if you're not doing what you thought you were going to be doing 20 years ago, there's that little voice in the back of your mind that says you're not good enough. And even though most of us know how to keep that down, sometimes it just, it's sitting there like, hey, do you want an iced coffee? You're not good enough. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Oh, I know that voice so yeah. well. <laughs> like, so so. He doesn't feel like he can he can call himself a real writer, which kind of leads him to kill his most famous character, which is Misery, hence the name of the book. Um, she dies in the most recent book that he's written, which isn't, I think, is this the book that he's finishing? No, the book that he finished at Silver Creek Lodge is an untitled work that yes. um, is completely different, doesn't feature any of the same characters. It's actually a, a modern story about kids who grow up in the slums. Well, I mean, uh, that's the bit that he talks about later is about kids who grow up in the slums. I think it's probably more like a, a slightly autobiographical uh, fictional story. But yeah. Yes. So then uh, the book Misery's Child is what it's called. Misery Dies. The book has not been published, but I believe it's gone to print because yeah, we end up with a copy of it in a little bit. And then, yeah, that's when he tells her he's going to go to Colorado. It's not a misery story. I hope it's going to work out. I'm going to be proud of this. And then all of a sudden we're back in the car. Yep. Cuts back to that. <laughs> Beautiful shot of the car buried in the snow. Where he's alive, covered in blood, uh, holding the book, because, you know, that's what you do. I don't know if he's if he's dying at this point. I certainly he's not in a good place, but he's kind of like in and out of it. And then you hear slash see somebody opening up the door. The person drags him out of the car, gives him CPR, gets his manuscript, his briefcase, and uh, picks him up and carries him away. Actually, I want to say like fireman carries him away, right? Yep. Absolutely. Fire, fireman carries him away. At that point, if you had never seen the trailer for the film and you knew nothing about it, you really would have absolutely no idea who that is carrying him out. We, of course, know that it's Annie, but um, the shot is actually really vague and in a very great way. They did it really well. I remember thinking that she kidnapped him, like, but it's like, really just an accident. And she was all like, hey, look, a dude in an accident. Oh, 
I was thinking about that a lot during my second uh, my second rewatch this week because I also remembered her sabotaging his trip from Silver Creek Lodge, but I don't think she did at all. A little later, she'll tell him that she was kind of following him. She admits that she would watch him, you know, watch his window at the lodge sometimes, and she would look up at the window and wonder what it was like to be the great Paul Sheldon. And I think that all of that stuff is true. And I think that her story about seeing him leave the lodge and wondering why he was about to drive out into a blizzard was also true. So I think it was just like an an abduction of opportunity. Wonderful kismet coincidence for Annie Wilkes. Well, it's true. And one of the other things that I really love about the character of Annie is that, you know, Kathy Bates, having come from that theater background, the character's motivation was very important to her. And Goldman also wanted to give Annie as much life as possible. They wanted to create the sense that she was a specifically sick woman. I'm actually quoting now, a specifically sick woman, not an all-purpose monster. I think that is a wonderful description of the character of Annie. And I think it's sort of reinforced by this introduction. I don't think she actually intended in any way to hurt him. She, She wanted to save her favorite author's life, but she's a sick woman. And so everything very quickly goes to the dark place you know but in that wonderful stephen king fashion yeah exactly so uh so the snow fills the screen and we get this really cool transition where the now white screen fades into this blurry pov which is sheldon's pov as he's regaining consciousness in in annie's house and then we get that first utterly chilling line from annie wilkes i'm your number one fan it's an even scarier line, I think, when you've already seen the film. But it, oh, it yeah. just, yeah, it gets scarier every time. <laughs> it's not sensual. It's not not sensual. She doesn't mean it to be sensual. But I think that that's where she's going with it. Because I want to say that at this point, she has projected a relationship onto Paul Sheldon because she thinks she knows him so well from just reading his books. Well, absolutely. And I <clears> think actually that's one of the most common things to have happen for fans, even not crazy fans. But it also leads to a lot of really crazy things that fans do. We tend to create completely fabricated connections that we feel we have to these people that we do not know. I totally, I mean, I get that because I read books, I watch movies and stuff. Just to get to see that person click something in your brain and you, I mean, like you feel that connection. I went to the Supernatural convention a few years ago. I told Mm -hmm. you about this. And I met Ruth Connell, who is the tiniest sweetest little redheaded scottish woman you're ever going to meet in your life and i instantly was like this is my friend my friend ruth connell is sitting right Right. there you know (laughs) and then she said i really like your shirt and i said thank you i made it (laughs) and i thought oh my god i just embarrassed myself in front of my friend but then you know like i had to i actually had to as a sane person sit down for a second and be like she's not your friend she doesn't know you you don't know her get out of your head about this even that as like a person who is not sick the way that Annie Wilkes is that mm-hmm. still happened to me and so I can only imagine what it was like for her okay so back into it I'm your number one fan Paul wakes up he sees Annie who's this plain kind Amish looking woman he's in bed he's banged up he asks where he is and she's like I'm Annie you're at my house it's okay I'm a nurse you've been here for two days and he's like cool and passes out again wakes up again, takes more painkillers. And then she says that the phones are dead in the hospital. We can't get to it because there's a blizzard. And so you're just going to have to stay here and never talk to anybody ever again. (laughs) She doesn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't say that. But she basically says, it's you and I, nobody else. Nobody can get to us. We can't get to anybody. Settle it. You know, so... (laughs) 
But then we get a shot of the exterior of the house, which shows that she's not lying. It's feet of snow. I've never been in a Colorado winter, but I can imagine that it's pretty severe. I do think that she is lying to him about um, the road to the hospital being closed. Maybe she's not. Maybe she's telling him the truth about that. Well, I don't know. Think about it. I mean, we grew up in Monroe and the side roads never got plowed. And Think about where she lives in relation to where a hospital would be. Yeah, that's true. So maybe those first couple of days, you know, maybe the roads and the phones really were out. And he has a pretty cozy setup in her guest bedroom. Like right now, especially as out of it as he is, um, and she's keeping him pretty well drugged up on those painkillers. And as nice as she seems, there's definitely very little reason for concern at this point on Sheldon's part. But because of that number one fan remark when he was coming out of it, we the audience know right away that Annie Wilkes is not quite what she seems. So Sheldon asks her, at this point, he's he's waking up, passing out, waking up, passing out. At one point, he asks if he'll ever be able to walk again. And she says, yes, of course. And then she proceeds to go down a little list of the injuries that he sustained in the crash. And she pulls the blanket down that's over him to reveal his legs, which are just all kinds of messed up. They're really swollen and bruised. His feet kind of look like misshapen potatoes. It's weird. And they're resting in these sort of homemade splints that she's really proud of. And she promises him after seeing him freak out, she says that she'll take him to a hospital as soon as the roads open up. Um, And then she says that she's honored that he'll be recovering until then at her house. Which is weird. It's just a weird thing to say. It's one of those things where like you, she's being sincere. She really is happy. And she's like not at in any way like mad or psychotic at this point. She's just excited that he's there, even though he's dying. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, Um, so she's going to take him to the hospital and then we cut and we're back at Marsha. She's worried because this is this is present with Marsha. And so she knows he's been at at Silver Creek, which is the the town that he was at. Yes, it was the Mm -hmm. town and the name of the lodge. Yes. Um, So she calls the police department and she's like, where's Paul Sheldon? That's where he went to finish his books. And the guy who answers the phone is Buster, who is played by Richard Farnsworth. If you need a good fishing guide, you could do a lot worse. If you have a sheriff in your town, you mm-hmm. want it to be Buster. Buster says, no, I haven't heard anything about him, but, you know, I'll, I'll figure some stuff out and call you back. But he does seem really concerned because he's Buster. Mm-hmm. And Buster loves the world. <laughs> he does. He really does. Why don't you talk about Frances Sternhagen? Because I don't know her. Oh, Frances Sternhagen is great. I haven't seen her in too much outside of Misery, but she plays Virginia, Buster's wife. And they, the two of them have such an adorable relationship. They are a couple of 70-year-old people who work together, live together, have probably been married, you know, for decades, and they're just still like two teenagers in love. During the phone call with Marsha that Buster has, we also learn that Paul has a daughter. We don't really ever get a whole lot of details about his daughter, apart from we know kind of roughly when her birthday is, and we know Paul is at least close enough with her that he normally checks in. So once Buster hangs up the phone with Marsha, when his wife walks in, Buster asks her, you know, like, when was that blizzard? So he's kind of putting it together that Paul left the lodge during the blizzard, or at least on the day of, and he looks, you know, really concerned. He kind of becomes a little obsessed with Paul Sheldon and finding him. And then we sort of do this weird zoom in on Buster playing idly with a rubber band while he's concentrating. And then we zoom back out to Annie shaving Paul with a straight razor. But not only is she shaving him with a straight razor, she's shaving him with a straight razor and going, I stalk you every time you're in town. Right? (laughs) Like, this is when she tells him that she was basically following him. Like, isn't that nice? Shink. 
So I love your work. <laughs> Shink. It's really scary. Don't move. <laughs> Shink. <laughs> <laughs> She's making what to her mind is idle conversation. And she's saying, you know, I sometimes I would park outside the lodge when I knew you were staying there because that's where he would go to finish his books, which apparently is something that she learned about him. Because he's a very Um, ritualistic person. Yes. Which (laughs) harkens back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, she tells him, I saw you leaving the parking lot when I was on my way home. I knew there was a blizzard coming. I followed you. And you're kind of left almost thinking she was just trying to make sure that he would be okay. I think I think that story she tells him right there is true and that it was an innocent thing. And she also tells him again that she's his number one fan. She says it a lot in the beginning and uh, that she's read all eight of his misery novels. We now learn that there are eight. They kind of have like an almost sweet sort of dialogue right here. And then he asks about the phone lines, which she says are still down, but that it won't be much longer until they're up. It's at this point where I actually believe she starts lying, especially because we find out that she doesn't have a phone. Maybe she did have a phone and she gutted it after Paul came to the house. That's what I think. I think, well, no, and I don't even think that at this point she's done it yet, but it's not until she's figured out that he later on can start Mm -hmm. moving and he's actually getting stronger. I think that's when she does it. I, I think that makes sense. She tells him that the phone lines um, will be up soon. And then she asks him for his daughter's phone number and his agent's phone number, saying that she'll try to reach them for him. And then she turns around as she's getting ready to leave the room. And she asks him if she can read his new book, which she, of course, spotted at the car crash and saved it along with him, you know, and brought it back. He tells her that she can. So she takes it and leaves all excited. But interestingly, when she first asks him if she can read the book, he makes this sort of joke that seems like he's going to tell her that she can't read And she actually reacts like she was expecting that and that she understands. Like she reacts in a normal, sort of polite, human way. Going back to what Goldman said when developing the character of Annie about wanting her to not be an all-purpose monster, I feel like these first few days when we see her with Paul Sheldon are excellent examples of how well they accomplished that. She didn't design that accident and she did use actual nursing skills to, you know, save his life, nurse him back to health. And she does love his book. So at this point, the story could go either way. <laughs> Until she says, forgive me for prattling on and making you feel all oogie. 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 Then you I know that oogie. it's a wholesome family film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she says oogie twice in the film, and I swear to God, it's like one of my favorite words. <laughs> I love that. So <clears throat> she makes him feel oogie, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> we cut back to the Silver Creek Lodge where Buster is questioning Libby because Buster is nothing if not wonderful at his job. There was nothing out of the ordinary with Sheldon's visit. Uh, he left like he always does in a 65 Ford Mustang. Uh, so then we are back at the farmhouse and Annie is spoon feeding Paul Sheldon some sort of uh, soup or gravy. But she looks a little distraught and he insists that she's Tell him what she thinks because he wants to know she's his biggest fan. What do you think of my new book? The swearing, Paul. There, I said it. She doesn't like profanity in the book. It doesn't make it noble. It's probably a shift from the misery novels, which were period pieces. And so they didn't talk like that. And he says, you know, well, the characters in my new story are, are kind of from the slums. And so they, they talk like that. And then that's where she kind of starts to become dark Annie Wilkes, the bad yeah. Annie that you kind of you're kind of like seeing the cracks in her facade now mm-hmm. yeah um, when he says everybody talks like that that's when she kind of snaps and we see that darker side yeah 
because Annie Wilkes doesn't talk like that. And so obviously not everybody talks like that. Um, but she starts to yell at him kind of not really like she's not screaming at him, um, but she's raising her voice and you're like, you're shocked because it, what's, what is Annie Wilkes doing? You know? And she's like, you're wrong. And you really think that I go around cussing at everybody all day long. And she gives these really awesome. Okay. Pretend you're being chewed out by a three-year-old who knows <laughs> that there are bad things to say, but does not know what they are. Right? She was like, Wally, can I get a bag of that effing pig speed and give me some of that bitchly cow corn? She says yeah. the word bitchly. <laughs> I know what these bad words are, but I'm not sure how to use them. Yeah. Bitchly, yes. During her rant, she's yelling about the bitchly corn. Uh, she gets... <laughs> She gets so worked up about it that she actually spills the soup on the bed and then she shouts at him that he made her do it, which mm -hmm. kind of like, I think puts Annie back into a place where she has been previously before mm -hmm. the whole Paul Sheldon thing and she realizes that she's going there. So yep. she stops. Mm -hmm. She says she's sorry immediately, tells him that she gets worked up and that she loves him. And doesn't she like kind of leave? She tells him that she loves him. She says, you know, I love you, Paul. But then she like immediately kind of backpedals and says, I just mean your mind. It's your creativity that I love. And the music is particularly effective, by the way, in moments like this, because the, the music was getting very, very angry as she was getting angry. And then when she calmed down, the music got sweeter. She does leave and we get a shot of Paul's face. That happens a lot where Annie will do or say something ridiculous. She leaves the room and Paul's reaction, silent reaction is what we see. And Paul is definitely more than a little uncomfortable with Annie's outburst. And I think this is where he's starting to realize that maybe... He's in the home of somebody who's not quite so stable. But so we leave them uh, for a minute. We see Buster in Virginia driving along the same road that Paul drove down during the blizzard. And we get some more very cute dialogue between the two of them. This is also where we realize that Virginia is Buster's deputy. She's feeling him up in the car and he's telling her to behave herself. And their dialogue is very quickly interrupted because Buster spots a medium-sized tree with a broken limb on the side of the road. And they stop and get out and he investigates until he falls waist deep into a snowbank. Virginia teases him and then he is frustrated and he gives up, pulls himself out of the snow and goes back to the car. And the camera pans just slightly to the right to reveal one of the wheels of Sheldon's Mustang just barely sticking up out of the snow. So Buster just barely missed the car. They head back to the truck and now we see them from a different POV inside someone else's car, which turns out to be Annie's. She's driving down the road toward town, I want to say, and doesn't even blink as she passes Buster's car, and he doesn't seem to take any notice of her either. Back at the farmhouse, Annie pokes her head into Paul Sheldon's room and tells him, hey, I, I just got the your latest Misery book, Misery's Child. I was at the store. You know, they, they always hold the first copy for her. So she gets it before anybody else does. It really excites her. It's like the highlight of her, however long it takes between Paul Sheldon books. And he says, oh, okay, so the roads are town to open. And she says, yeah, the road to town's open to one of the hospitals not. Which now you know that she's lying because the road to town is open, sure. But the road to the hospital, that's going to have been open from town. She tells him that she called the hospital. They tell her that as long as there's no infection, he's fine right where he is. You know, she says they're going to send an ambulance as soon as the road clears up. Again, I think she's lying because if the road to town's open, the road to the hospital is open. She does a lot of really good riffing, though, here. I mean, she is a very good lying on the spot kind of liar. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so he says, oh, OK, so you called the hospital. So that means the phones are working. But then she instantly says, nope, my phone's still out. I called the hospital from the phone in town. I called your agent. She's fine. I don't want to talk about it. I want to read the book. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, she doesn't even, when she mentions that she called the agent, she just skirts right over that. She's like, yeah, I called that agent. Oh my God, look, the book. She's excited to read the book. She wants to read Misery's Child and he's stressed. And he's talking about, you know, I I imagine that he's stressed because he killed Misery. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. He has to know um, that that is not going to go well. It's not going to be very good at all. So she leaves the room and she goes to read the book. So later on, uh, it's that day or it's possibly early the next day i'm not sure uh, she gives him his food and she says i'm on page 75 of misery's child it's perfect they do that again where the last shot that we see of that scene is of paul's face reacting to his interaction with annie and it's it's just great because james Kahn's character has significantly fewer lines than kathy bates and the character is kind of a man of few words in this situation so a lot of what's going on with paul we see only on his face Kahn really did a great job of conveying a lot without saying much at all. And in this particular case, like you mentioned, Bruce, the tension is building as we know that eventually Annie is going to read the end of Misery's Child and realize mm. that Misery's dead. And that's, it's just, we we all know it's not going to go over well. And I, I definitely know Paul knows it at this point, but I don't think he's letting himself get too freaked out. He's such a Zen guy. That's the thing about James Kahn. He played Paul in such a unique way. And I'm sure also that it was how Paul was written, but Paul's adaptive abilities in this situation are staggering. He really just adapts so quickly and handles so much of what happens to him during his his time in captivity very well. And he doesn't lose a, a single iota of snark the whole time. Not at all. No. So we get a couple of nice exterior shots and then we're back inside where Annie lets a pig into Paul's room and Paul is not amused. The pig, it turns out, is named Misery, and it's Annie's prized pet. It makes a ton of pig noises, and kind of like the way a puppy is like all over a human when it's first introduced to it. That's what Misery's doing, but it's making Paul super uncomfortable. He pretends he likes her as best he can, um, and Annie tells him that she's on page 300 now of Misery's Child. And then she uses this charming racial slur to compare Misery's Child to Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, saying that the chapel painting and Misery's Child are the only two divine things in all the world. Uh, and then she exits, making these like crazed pig noises at both Misery and then at Paul. Paul's freaked out. I mean, like visibly, thoroughly freaked out and probably kind of annoyed. So a little bit later, Annie's standing at the window in Paul's room and she kind of goes into her past just a little bit when she worked at a hospital and how uh, that's where she discovered the Misery books and she kind of tells them that they really helped her get through her husband leaving her. So we're getting a little bit little bit of background on Annie now. You know, now that she was a nurse at a hospital and she's been married and divorced. Maybe. I mean, we actually Possibly. don't ever I mean, get like, confirmation about that. I like to believe that she was. Yeah. Because she's got really no reason to lie about it. Um, Maybe she killed her husband. It's possible. Yeah. You never know. Never know. She, uh, she's only got a couple chapters left in the book. And then we realize that the whole time she's been talking and staring out the window, Paul has been peeing into a cup. And she just takes it from him, you know, no nonsense, and shakes it around while she talks about marriage and how people can't commit. And then you see the look on Paul's face, and it almost turns it into a comedic scene. It really does. His <laughs> eyes are trained on that, yo know, cup thing. It's a funny moment. So that 
segues very nicely into the next scene uh, where it's nighttime. And we know that in the previous scene, she only had a couple chapters left. So you know that at this point, Mm -hmm. she has either finished it or she's real close. We get a very nice, pretty shot of the moon in the sky. Then you get to see the house. Then you get to see Paul sleeping. And he's almost peaceful. His door (laughs) opens and there's Annie. And she's standing there with like a crazy Kathy Bates expression on her face. If you know Kathy Bates, she's very expressive. Yeah. Crazy Kathy Bates is something that will give you nightmares. And she says, Misery can't be dead. And Paul tries to explain to her, yes, you know, women died in childbirth a lot in the late 1800s. It's okay. Her body is dead. Her spirit lives on. But Annie is not having it. She grabs the base of the bed. She shakes it and she says, she doesn't want Misery's spirit. You killed my Misery. You're a murderer. She goes to the edge of his bed. She calls him a dirty bird, which is another one of her oogie things. You're just another lying old dirty birdie. And I don't think I better be around you for a while. And then she turns around and she tells him that nobody's coming for him. She never called anybody, which we knew. Nobody knows he's there, which we knew. And we see Paul again, who now has realized the full extent of the predicament that he's in. She leaves the house. He tries to get out of the bed. And he does, but instead of being up and about and running out of the house, he's on the floor writhing in agony because his legs still do not work. I would say that this marks the transition from act one to act two and it does it very well you definitely feel a change we we knew that this was coming and now it's a totally different story for paul because now everything is going to be about him figuring out how to escape but he does it in his very cool sarcastic sassy paul sheldon way i really like the character of paul sheldon and i i feel very badly for him he's in so much pain too and to want to be able to just get up and be strong and do what you have to do but to have your body be so broken must be so frustrating so now we cut to buster station the next day where he's talking to marsha on the phone again and he has a newspaper open in front of him on a page with an article about paul sheldon having gone missing he tells marsha not to come to silver creek that there isn't any point i'm assuming she was just going to come out there and help him look but he assures her that the state police and the fbi are both involved in the search for sheldon now and while that conversation is ending Virginia hangs up the other line and tells Buster that Sheldon hasn't spent any money uh, with his credit cards since he left the lodge, like they did some kind of search. So that's also a little disconcerting. At this point, Annie has returned home. She's calmed down and she finds Paul passed out on the bedroom floor. She puts him back in bed and then she tells him that she has a surprise for him. She tells him that before she can give him the surprise, he needs to do something. And then she talks briefly about how she doesn't always think straight, but then she tells tells him that she's thinking perfectly clearly now. And she says that she talked to God about him and that God told her it was her job to show Sheldon the way. This for me is the single scariest event of the movie. This is the part of the movie that has stuck with me the most over all of these years. It's the one that disturbs me the most. And maybe that's because I'm a writer, (laughs) but holy shit, I just still cannot even, it makes my whole body cringe. She leaves the room and she wheels in one of those uh, backyard cookout grills. And on it is Paul's briefcase, which we know contains his manuscript, a book of matches and a can of lighter fluid or kerosene. I'm going to say lighter fluid. She opens up the briefcase and pulls out Paul's manuscript and then douses it in the fluid, hands Paul the matches and tells him to burn his filthy new non-misery book. He tries to stall her. (laughs) 
by first telling her that there are dozens of other copies and that she wouldn't actually be, you know, reading the world of anything by making him do this. But she knows how superstitious he is and that because of that superstition, he never makes a copy of the book that he's currently writing because he said that in an interview, you know, some decades earlier. And then he tries to bargain with her saying that he'll never publish the book. And she just keeps ignoring everything that he says and insisting in that I talked to God. God told me that this is what needs to happen. Shut the fuck up, Paul, and burn your book. You know, it's just that very calm insistence. And he's just so desperate. And you can tell that he would do almost anything within his power to not do this. But as she's giving him this speech about how he needs to just get over it and, you know, surrender to God's will, essentially, although she doesn't come right out and say that, she's just subtly dousing the bed in lighter fluid. The most subtle of threats, but it works. And with just this look of utter defeat on his face, he lights the match and he does this weird miracle toss where it lands directly on top of the manuscript in the grill and it bursts into a giant flame. Traumatized me to my very core. <laughs> that's see, but that right there, that's like psychological terror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she didn't do it. She made she him, made him do it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And that's just awful. But not only that, but she's totally implied that if you don't light your book on fire, I'm gonna put you back into your bed and light it on fire. So oh, he's in the bed when she does this. Oh, that's oh that's right. So yeah, he burned his book. And it's awful. Oh, because that was like I hate it. that was the thing. That was his, like, I finally did a not misery thing and it was good. Yeah, it was the thing that made him feel like a real writer. It bursts into flame. Not small, big flames. And Annie's freaking out. She keeps saying, heavens to Betsy. Oh, goodness. Heavens to Betsy. Oh, goodness. Oh, my goodness. It just, it takes you back into that thing where, like, Annie is, she's a split personality, really. Yeah, she really um, is. This is a great moment for yeah, that. And it's burn your book, Paul, before I kill you. Heavens to Betsy. And I mean, like, it's <laughs> it like turns around like that. So you mm-hmm. really get an idea in this scene about how crazy she actually is. And he's just lying there. He's beaten. He's he's a broken man, which I can't even imagine. Uh, but then the room starts to catch on fire. And so Annie takes the grill away from the window, grabs a bucket of water from the hallway and puts it all out. And then she just takes the grill out of the room altogether. And as she does this, a helicopter flies over the, or no, it doesn't fly over the house, at least not yet. You can hear it in the distance. You get a shot from the inside of the helicopter and that's where Buster and the pilot, Rob Reiner, are flying over and he looks over the property they don't see the car and so they keep going buster is not dumb he's zeroing in he just keeps missing stuff so then we go back to annie and she's trying to small talk with paul gives him his pills takes the matchbox away but he's broken he's staring into the distance he's not listening he hears nothing she wheels the grill out of the room and then he pockets the meds that she gave him. And afterward, we get a rare glimpse into Annie's life separate from Paul and we see her in her bedroom, presumably later that night or possibly the next evening. And she's lying in bed, cuddling a stuffed pig, eating cheese puffs and happily watching Love Connection. And then we see Paul eating in his room and you can kind of hear Annie's TV through the ceiling and he's pocketing his meds again, this time using a silverware to cut a slit in the mattress and just stuff the pills in there. Later Later still, we see that Annie has gotten Paul a wheelchair, which uh, he sarcastically thanks her for. And then she presents him with an electric shaving kit so he can shave himself, which he sarcastically thanks her for. And then she tells him that she's setting up a new studio for him. She brings in a folding table and then a typewriter and then wheels him over to them, telling him that he's going to write a new Misery novel, one where Misery is alive. Type the book, bitch, which is not what she says, but (laughs) she basically says. Paul's reaction's kind of funny. 
not amusing, but you know, he explains that it's a weird situation. Most books don't get written this way. Uh, but she says, now you're going to do great. She gives him fresh typing paper and she gives him white out. She's running around getting, she's super excited. Um, but he notices a bobby pin on the floor and he says, you know, you did a great job, but this typing paper is the wrong kind. It smudges. And, uh, he shows her, he types out like some lines or some numbers. The word smudge. Smudge. Maybe that's it. <laughs> he types out, but then he runs his thumb along it, and sure enough, it smudges. She gets pissed off. She slams the wrong paper onto his legs, which, you know, of course hurts. And she calls him, What? how does she say it? What's the line? Mr. Man. <laughs> she says that a couple times. I took the phrase Mr. Man, and I went on, after seeing this movie for the first time at like the age of 11 or 12, and I went on to call random dudes Mr. Man for years. I can like, attest I- to this. Even <laughs> though she's all pissed off about it, she does go into town to get him the right paper that's not going to smudge and he uses the bobby pin i think surprising to him and to the audience yeah because who expects that kind of crap to work right (laughs) so he unlocks the door he's wheeling around the house he's trying to get out can't get far so really mostly he's just kind of trying to figure out the layout this is where he finds the aforementioned phone and he tries to use it but it's not connected to anything there's nothing inside of it but then we start getting flashes of annie driving back from the store as paul is looking around the house and it's just kind of showing you that like he doesn't have much time She's getting closer to the house. And they do it in a lot of movies. I want to say that it's almost like a trope in a suspense movie. The killer's coming back. You see the killer coming back. At this point, you're you're telling Paul, go back into the room, get back in there or get out, you know, do something. So he's trying to get back to the room. He bumps into an end table and knocks a ceramic penguin off. But he catches it before it hits the floor and he puts it back up onto the table. But to the keen observer, it's pointing a different way than it was pointing before. He sees a scrapbook. There's also a shrine to him and some misery novels. There's a closet filled with medical supplies. He gets some more painkillers. He sticks them in his pants. He finds the back door in the kitchen, but he can't get through it because uh, his wheelchair is too big. And I think that there's probably steps or something. He wouldn't be able to get down anyway. Mm. But anyway, his chair doesn't fit through. <laughs> so he gets out of it and drags himself across the kitchen floor. But of course he gets there and it's locked. So he kind of just sits up against the stove and kind of like takes in everything that he's learned, sees a bunch of, you know, kitchen knives on the counter. But uh, before he can grab one, Annie pulls back up to the house. You hear it. And uh, there's a nice, huge, long, tense, just awful scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can tell he's in pain. He gets back in his wheelchair. He goes into the room. And she's walking up to the house at this point. He gets back inside. He locks the door. He didn't have that much time. I mean, like, I want to say he he rolled up to the typewriter when she came in. Yes. Oh, yeah. It was like one of those just down to the second yeah. narrow escapes. Yeah. He's covered in sweat. He's all out of breath. And she's like, the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, But he plays it off like he's in a lot of pain and he needs his meds, which you know that if you're in a lot of pain, yes, you can be sweaty and out of breath, which as a nurse, she would also know. And it works. She believes Mm -hmm. and gives him the pills. And she talks to him a little bit about her temper as she's helping him into bed, which he tries to make her feel better about because he's nothing if not playing her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very well said. She gives him a pad of notepaper and a pencil in case he gets any ideas while he's not at the typewriter. She calls him her darling and blows him a kiss. It's very sweet. She's she's back to being like sweet Annie, but now she's like sweet and loving. Getting a little romantic. A little romantic. <laughs> she's, I think, she imagines that he's courting her. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think so, has yeah. that air about it. Yeah. For sure. And now we're back in the helicopter. Buster has gone back out in search of Sheldon's car. You know, it's a small town and he doesn't have a lot to do. And as, as we mentioned before, he's become a little obsessed. Thankfully now enough of the snow has melted that this time they do find Paul's car. We get a fun shot with like a binocular frame around it of them looking at the car and it kind of zooms in. And then we cut to sometimes 
time later, where a state trooper, played by an uncredited J.T. Walsh, he's surrounded by several news crews in front of the car as it's being pulled out of the snow on a crane. And he tells them that Paul Sheldon is now presumed dead, and they assume he crawled from the car and couldn't possibly have survived so long out there in the wilderness in winter. And then he says that they'll search for his body after the first thaw. While this is happening, Buster is now examining the car, and he notices that the car door was dented shut and then pried open. So he knows for sure that Sheldon couldn't have climbed out of the car on his own. So we're back at Annie's house now. Paul has used the note paper to, is he crushing the pills and they're putting them in there? They're um, capsules. So he's, ah, he's, yeah, that's right. He's pulling them apart. Yeah. And putting this stuff in. He's sitting in front of the typewriter and he's staring at a blank page. And obviously he's got writer's block or at least writers. I don't want to write this fucking book, whatever you call that. So he types the word fuck like 10 times. (laughs) I love it. Eventually, though, he does he does actually start writing. It's almost a montage of him writing, not a fun 80s montage. And you get to the first pause and he comes in and she says, no, this is all this is all awful. You have to scrap it. It's bad. And he says, well, thanks, but that's not fair. And she says it's the cliffhanger because Misery's child to her was a cliffhanger because Misery's obviously not dead. So you can't do it like this because I don't I don't remember the entire speech. I do know cliffhangers kind of went out of fashion and 30s. They were brought back with network television, obviously, but, um, you know, like season finales, things like that. Um, Right, but I think Cliffhanger specifically uh, shown in theaters on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, went out of style in the 30s. 30s. Um, So Annie, who was we're guessing born in the 50s uh, mm-hmm. would have probably not gone to them growing up but that doesn't really matter because she gives the most amazing speech about the rocket man cliffhanger and it's just awesome oh god I, I wish that I could remember verbatim the speech that she gives but she's talking about how she was a little girl and she went to the theater and she was watching rocket man and rocket man is stuck in the car and oh my god the car goes over a cliff and rocket man is stuck inside what's gonna happen she's just so excited and so the next week because it was Saturday right she goes back to the theater and she's the first one in line and she's like how's rocket man gonna get out of the car and I don't understand what's going to the car exploded yeah it exploded it exploded mm-hmm. oh yeah and every I'm sorry all the doors to the car had been welded shut yes they were all welded shut there was no way Rocket Man could have gotten out of the car so she was very excited to see how he survived this crash and she was the first one in line and she gets in and she's got her ticket and she's probably got some popcorn and some candy and she's she's there and she's watching and then all of a sudden Rocket Man jumps out of the car and yep. little Annie Wilkes stands up in front of the whole theater. She is like screaming. He didn't get out of the cockadoodie car. And that's the first time she says the word cockadoodie, and it is burned <laughs> into my mind. <laughs> Kathy Bates is the greatest actress of all time. She really is. She does not like cheap corner cutting from her storytellers. Yep. If the doors were welded shut and Rocket Man was in the car when it exploded, he had better be burning alive the next time I see him. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> and since Misery was buried in the ground, straight up dead in the last book, he has to start with her burial. She's basically yeah. been buried alive and, she, and Annie won't have it any other way. She can't just crawl out of a ditch. And then the next time <laughs> that we pause, Annie is sitting in Paul's bedroom essentially reading more of his pages and this time she loves them and she tells Paul that her resurrection is perfect he wrote this thing about how she went into like a temporary coma because she was stung by bees that she was very allergic to and then he also reveals that she is the daughter of a noble woman who also famously died from bee stings <laughs> and anyway Annie's super happy about it so they dig her up and Misery's alive and she's spinning around and like sounded music circles you know misery's alive and then she declares that she's going to fill the house with liberace music oh this whole house 
house is gonna be filled with romance. <gasps> I'm gonna put on my Liberace records. Definitely one of my personal favorite lines in the film. Paul humors her yet still more here, teasing her that she'll have to wait to find out what happens, then tells her that she can read each chapter as he's done. And she's running around like a literal crazy person until Paul asks if she'd like to have dinner with him to celebrate Misery's resurrection, and it stuns her. She is just zerged. She can't move. This is why I, I hearken it to the Thousand and One Tales of Sherazad, and he's giving her what she wants, knowing that it's getting him closer and closer to free. Now, I think this is an excellent time for Bruce and me to take a little bit of a break. You're not going to be able to tell with how much I'm going to be editing out. We have veered off every track uh, on the road. Uh, <laughs> we basically his- drove our car off a cliff, just like Paul Sheldon. Exactly. We, we've just been at this for hours. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we will see what happens to poor Paul Sheldon and his darling Annie. All right, we are back. Welcome back, Bruce. Thank you. Welcome back, Molly. Thank you. Appreciate that. I feel like oh. we're on like a morning news <laughs> show, you know? <laughs> morning mimosas. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, I'm not a drinker, but morning mimosas does sound pretty fancy and delicious. <laughs> yeah. Our break turned out to be a little longer than we expected. It is now Friday. We were recording initially on Thursday, but I feel much better. My, my throat needed the rest, I think. Yes, but I'm yeah. also less tired and I got some water. Water is good. I'm actually drinking ginger beer at the moment, but I think I'll be switching to water soon. You blush. I know. (laughs) All right. So we left off yesterday with Annie kind of wandering down the hallway in a sort of zombie-like state in shock after Paul has asked her to go to dinner with him or have dinner with him. Yes. yes. But before we go on, I have a little confession to make. Uh Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. You have a confession to make? I have a little confession to make, yes. Oh, I'm so excited, please. <laughs> I have been referring a lot to uh, the Thousand and One Tales of Shiarzad. However, the collection of stories is actually called One Thousand and One Nights. But I believe that I was romanticizing the title a little bit because One Thousand and One Nights to me is just boring and I would never pick that book up. <laughs> the book that I picked up would obviously be called The Thousand and One Tales of Shiarzad because it's just, I don't know, it rolls off the tongue. It's more romantic. So A Thousand and One Nights is the book, but The the Tales of Shiarzad, is that a story within the book or where was Shiarzad coming from? Okay, so A Thousand and One Nights is actually the story of an Arabian monarch. He finds out that his wife is cheating on him. He kills her. Like you do. So, like you do. So anyway, <laughs> he kills her, and then he vows that he will marry a virgin every day. Oh. And at the end of the day, will kill her so that she does not have a chance to be unfaithful and will marry again the next day. Wow. Um, but Shiarzad is the vizier's daughter, and she volunteers to be the next wife. Well, in doing so, what she does is she starts a story, and it's it's a fantastic story, and he's just enthralled. But then just before dawn, when she is halfway through the story, she stops. She says, oh, no, but it's it's the next day, and it, it, this is the time where I die, and you find a new wife. And he is enthralled, and he says, no, 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 we, uh, we'll... We'll wait on that because I need you to finish the story. And so what she's doing, and like I'm just now connecting this again, is she's leaving him with cliffhangers and not finishing the story till the next night. This happens for 1,000 stories. The night of when she finishes the 1,000th story, which would be the 1,001st night, mm-hmm. uh, she says, I, that's it, I don't have any more stories to tell. But at this point, the monarch has fallen in love with her and he marries her and they live happily ever after. So it's a very different skewed ending than Misery's probably going to have. Right. So that's my confession. 
Well, I am definitely relieved to have somebody else confessing their sins on this podcast for once. I hope you feel cleansed and renewed. I do. Um, Excellent. That is the desired effect. We can get back to Annie and Paul and their romantic dinner together. Although I guess before we get to the romantic meal, we, we do have to cut back to Buster's station where he and Virginia are doing and saying more adorable things. And Buster, he arrives with this giant bag full of Sheldon's misery novels. I guess he bought like the whole series. He explains to Virginia that since he can't find Paul, he'll at least be able to learn what he wrote about. I think, you know, this is his way of kind of remaining connected to a case that at this point, I think he's very reluctant to give up. So this is kind of a way, I think, of keeping the case going. So we see that. And then we get to the uh, Liberace-infused romantic meal. Um, Paul's sitting at the dinner table. She's letting him out of the room. She trusts him more. This is obviously, you know, he's still reeling her in and she's sort of falling for it now. Tells her she looks wonderful, which she does. She's really nervous, but she's happy. Paul proposes a toast, but before they drink, he stops and he tells her, hey, you know, this isn't right. There are no candles. We need to, we need the candles to make it right. And so she leaves the room and he pulls out the pouch that has the medication in it that he's been hoarding. He dumps like the whole thing into her wine glass. So apparently he thinks that Annie is a horse and needs lots and lots of pain. <laughs> Killers to like go to sleep I mean, or whatever. I think this is a situation where overcorrecting is understandable, you know? Like, you really want to make sure it works if you only got one shot. Although, I feel with as many pills as he had been stashing, he mm-hmm. probably could have dumped just half of them. He sadly did not do that, but yeah. Um, because, yeah, he thinks, thinks she's a horse. <laughs> yes. Either that or maybe he's just trying to kill her. You know, I mean, if you're going to go for one over the other, she's been mm-hmm. holding you captive for months at this point, right? Well, I don't know that it's been months yet, but it's it's definitely going to be months very soon. Anyway, so he gets the he gets the powder mixed in, you know, everything's fine. She comes back, she's got the candles, she lights them, and then they toast. But she's nervous, and so she knocks the candle over, and then she knocks the wine glass over, and then Paul dies a little bit. <laughs> his reaction <laughs> is priceless. It's even better than when she was shaking his pee around. It's devastating though. I mean, we laugh, but it is a devastating moment for for that character. I don't want to say he gets over it because obviously he doesn't. Why would you? But in Paul Sheldon fashion, he sucks it back up really quick and they toast Mm -hmm. to misery. He just you know, play, he just so. goes with it. He rolls with it. Paul Sheldon really is a heroic character, if if for no other reason than his capacity to just roll with the punches, as they say. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know that I could have. I've made it past like the first night. Yes. I think I would have lost my shit. And then she would have put it in a glass and waved it around in front of me. <laughs> uh, so now we go back to another montage. You know, for a movie that's not fun '80s rom com, this yeah. has a lot of montages in it. They are unique montages. Annie's reading what Paul's writing. Buster is reading what Paul has already written. Paul is writing, but now he's using the typewriter, which is apparently very heavy. Oh, yeah. Have you ever Um, picked up like an antique typewriter? They're very heavy. And he's, you know, he's he's exercising. He's getting his strength back. And Annie interrupts him and he doesn't want her to know that he's doing that. She's not really paying attention because she's very depressed. She's very disheveled. Um, she comes in to give him his meds, and she's almost shuffling like a zombie again. But what she says is that the rain makes her sad. It's storming outside at this point. She kind of confesses. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, she confesses that she's she's fallen in love with Paul and that she knows that he doesn't love her back. And uh, that she knows she's going to lose him because his legs are getting better and the book is almost done. Then she pulls out an old revolver out of her robes and says that she thinks about using it and then she leaves. Yeah. One of the scenes that 
really kind of stuck with me uh, the most over the years was her coming in at that moment saying, you know, the rain gives her the blues and and kind of just looking at the gun very sadly. And I feel like we're sort of seeing the most raw version of Annie Wilkes at this moment. Like this is the Annie at the root of it all. And she knows that she's put Paul through hell. She knows he's miserable there. She knows, you know, like she says that he doesn't love her. It's a very reasonable Annie, but it's also, of course, a very broken Annie. This is also a scene where I kind of think a lot about some of the backstory that Kathy Bates and William Goldman injected into the character of Annie Wilkes uh, because they wanted her to feel fully fleshed out and three-dimensional. So they kind of decided that even though it was never written anywhere, that she had been molested by her father. I see all of that in Kathy Bates' performance in that scene. You almost feel bad for her. Mm-hmm. She's broken. She's just as broken as Paul is, you know, just for a different reason and in a different way and obviously just more shattered. She gives him this speech that is at once heartbreaking and also a little scary, primarily because of the gun at the end. She leaves Paul. She heads out into the rain, gets into her car and drives off. Once she's gone, Paul leaves his room again. He uses the bobby pin. Jimmy Salak goes out, this time grabbing one of the knives that he spotted in the kitchen the first time. We cut back to Buster and Virginia who are at home in bed. Buster, he's reading one of the Misery novels and he comes upon a passage in the book that piques his interest. There is a justice higher than that of man. I will be judged by him. And he quotes it and then he grabs a piece of paper and he writes it down. I don't think he knows at that point what it is about that sentence. It's very important to him to remember it. So then we cut back to Annie's and we continue to follow Paul on his second adventure. He spots the scrapbook that he saw the first time he got out, only now it's lying open and there are articles about him. Um, So he goes over to the book naturally and starts looking through it. He starts at the beginning. And at first, it's just pictures of someone that we assume Annie and other people from the 1950s and 60s. And then there's an article about a man that I assume is Annie's dad and about his death. He evidently fell down the stairs at their house when Annie was 11 and she was the one who found him. This is another thing that I I kind of feel connects to that backstory that they invented for her. I personally believe just from that article and what I know about that backstory that Annie killed her father. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes the most sense. And I really like that they put that in there. It's very subtle. It happens very quickly. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that article was in the book. So there's that article about her dad, which is followed by an article about a nurse being killed. uh, And then a bunch of articles about Annie and her becoming this awesome nurse. uh, But then more articles. And these are about babies mysteriously dying on the maternity ward in the hospital where Annie worked. See, that's the other thing about, you know, the discovery that we find out that Annie, who we knew was already unstable, she's not just a killer. She's a she's a baby killer. <laughs> it's just yeah. awful. We don't get another tense series of shots of, you know, him trying to hurry up. She drove off pathetically into the night and, and doesn't come back for quite some time. So he has plenty of time, Paul, to get back to his room. And uh, with the knife now, he lies in bed and he hides the, the kitchen knife in his sling, which his arm is still in the sling at this point. So it has it hasn't been a terribly long time, but I think it has been several weeks. So he hides the kitchen knife in his sling and he practices whipping it out, you know, in this violent quick motion. And he's practicing stabbing her. I think it's pretty clear that he's intent on stabbing her as soon as she comes back home and checks on him. But that plan is also foiled because when she comes home this time, she just kind of stands outside of his door. He can see the shadow underneath the door and, uh, and doesn't come in. Sometime in the night, I think the same night, Paul wakes up in the dark to find Annie 
Ronnie standing over his bed. It's a fantastic moment where there's this big lightning crash that reveals her face in a kind of semi-close-up. And I just, oh, I love it. It's so ominous and frightening. This lightning crash reveal. If you were watching a preview for the movie and this is what you saw, you would go to see the movie based on her face right here. Absolutely. Oh, it's so sinister. Yeah, it's very terrifying. And then she sedates him. Wake up, you need to go to sleep. (laughs) So he passes back out and then he wakes up again and he's really, really loopy. It's and so uh, well, it's cute till you realize he's tied to the bed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair, fair. Yes. Yeah, he's tied to the bed. This is where the movie kind of shifts gears for me in a way that where it starts to just, it's scary. And oh, Annie yeah. has become very scary. It goes from um, suspense to horror at this point. Absolutely. This is the scene that is kind of the most famous scene from the film. It's regarded as one of the scariest moments in, in horror. She knows he's been out of his room. He reaches for his knife, but she's found it already because he stashed it under the mattress. She tells him that he just needs more time to accept his position that he's living here now. She knows it's only a matter of time before he leaves, so she has to put a stop to that right quick. So she hobbles him. He begs her not to do it. And it's really the one time where we see Paul just really fall apart. He can't hold it together here. But of course she does it anyway. Paul is screaming bloody murder, obviously, and he's like convulsing and almost, I think, foaming at the mouth a little. (laughs) In the book. She actually takes an axe and just straight up cuts off one of his feet. So (laughs) as brutal as this is, it's more tame than what she does in Stephen King's Twisted Mind. Yeah, and Um, apparently Goldman, this was the scene that sold him on adapting the film. Evidently, he just held firm for a long time that they were going to keep the foot chopping scene in. But finally, Rob Reiner and the producers convinced him that it was just going to be too brutal. So they, they turned it into a hobbling scene. She has hobbled him. It has left him just a shell of himself. So we see Annie driving to the store the next day or maybe a few days later. You're not really sure. A truck cuts her off and she starts doing that cussing but not really cussing but I'm cussing thing. You know, like effing bitch corn and all that. (laughs) She calls Um, him a poop. (laughs) A poop. Does she say poop? Yeah, she says, you poop. (laughs) She's, She's not cussing cussing and the sheriff notices and he watches her park she's still not cussing and then (laughs) he goes back to the office and he starts digging for a paper where he copied down that misery quote then he goes to the library and he's going through some old newspapers and lands on one about annie which apparently they nicknamed her the dragon lady he finds the article where she goes to prison uh, after murdering all the babies at the hospital. And beneath the picture of her is a quote from the court case where she told the press, if there is a justice higher than that of man, I will be judged by him. Yeah, I'm uh, going to guess that Buster must have just read that article maybe back when it happened. And it just was so long ago, you know, that he didn't put two and two together. So now Buster realizes that not only is Annie an avid Paul Sheldon fan, and I use the term avid as loosely as possible in this case, but that she's a serial killer. She murders babies. He's starting to piece things together because Paul couldn't have gotten out of the car on his own, yet somehow he got out. He's been missing, but apparently at this point they haven't found a body because there's no body to be found. Annie lives here in town. Paul was here in town. And so Buster, being the amazing chief of police sheriff that he is, is (laughs) figuring it out. I really like what he does, too. Once he sees this and things sort of 
sort of start clicking in his mind. I like that he immediately goes to that store. Once Annie goes in and out, he goes into the store and he talks to the shopkeeper and he asks him about Annie and her love of the misery books. And then he asks if she's bought anything out of the ordinary lately. The shopkeeper says that she hasn't bought anything weird unless, you know, you think typing paper is weird. That's all that Buster needs. That's the last piece in this agonizing puzzle that he's been putting together. And he just jumps in the truck and he speeds out to Annie's house. Paul sees the truck coming down the road and he gets excited, but Annie is just too quick. She's on it. She rushes into the bedroom, jams a needle into his arm very carelessly though, and fends him off as he tries to just strangle her. He just is, he's done. But she fends him off until the sedative kicks in and he passes out. So she wheels him out of the room and rushes him down to the basement All the while, even though he's passed out, she's lecturing him about how frustrating it is that he doesn't trust her. It's, for me, one of the funnier moments in the film is that that lecture that she gives him as she's hiding him in the basement. And tension is building, right? Because Buster's outside. I'm surprised that she didn't just throw him down the stairs. Obviously, she wouldn't. But, like, that would have been my first instinct. I actually remembered (laughs) her doing that. When I rewatched the film recently, I remembered it wrong. And I remembered her just, like, launching him from the top of the stairs down into the basement for some reason. (laughs) I don't know why. So Buster gets out of the truck. He gets closer to the house and he runs to the front door and opens it right as Buster is going to knock, which to me would have been more suspicious than had she just answered the door after he knocked. Oh, very true. I think he's very suspicious of her. He's Buster, you know. And he's a good detective, unlike the detective from Prom Night. And so he asks her, have you seen or heard anything about Paul Sheldon? And uh, she does that anything that Annie do. She immediately starts weaving a story about how after she heard that Paul Sheldon disappeared, she talked to God and God told her to be the new Paul Sheldon. And so she had to pick up where he left off with misery. God, it was just such quick thinking. Yeah, I probably would have been like, he's totally not tied up in my basement sedated right now. Don't check though. But then she invites him in. That's big brass Annie balls because why would you invite somebody into the house? Obviously, she thinks that Paul is fully sedated. Which she Um, should have known better because she was a nurse, but I think she was panicking. Being a diabetic, I can tell you that certain injectables are subcutaneous and you just need to get them under the skin, but there are some that need to go directly into a vein to be effective. And I think that a sedative is one of those, or at least for a sedative to be as effective as you need it to be. She didn't tie anything off. She didn't try. She was in a hurry. So he probably was a little sedated, but not that much and because it's wearing off, obviously. But she tried sedative on Paul and she's going to try hot cocoa on Buster because that's what she offers him upstairs. He's walking around the house. He's questioning her a little. She's acting very suspicious suspicious. While she's in the kitchen, he sneaks upstairs and checks out the rooms up there. She sneaks up behind him and offers him the cocoa. And he says, no, I don't want to take any more of your time. So he leaves. She closes the door behind him. And as he's going down the steps, Paul wakes up enough. He starts spasming and he knocks over a bunch of stuff in the basement. Buster hears it from outside, but... I think that at this point, Buster doesn't think a whole lot's going on. I don't know that he knows that Paul is there. Right, so he thinks right. that Annie fell down because he hurries back in and uh, asks her if she's okay. And when he gets down the main hall, though, he hears Paul shouting. So he turns and he's like, oh, look, a basement door. <laughs> so he opens the door. He sees Paul lying at the bottom of the stairs. He's like, oh, my God, it's Paul. 
and then he gets blasted right through the chest with a double barrel shotgun. So hard to watch. It's Very so it never gets easier to watch for me. Yeah, Buster getting shot. I mean, and, and you know, getting Bill Murray style blasted through the chest with that shotgun at close range. So there's no hope of him recovering. That oh, that was as hard to watch for me as Paul being forced to burn his book. Yes, this is one of those moments where the film itself is torturing the audience just mm-hmm. as Annie is torturing Paul. I'm gonna interrupt the movie telling here and go into some book storytelling. Oh, please do. Is obviously different because Buster is not a character in the book. So it's a state trooper that shows up and Paul gets his attention by actually throwing an ashtray through a window. So the state trooper's like, okay, something's happening here. And um, she has a sharpened crucifix that she stabs him with multiple times. What? And leaves him for dead. This None of this happens in the basement. I believe that this is in the entryway of the house or on the front porch, but it's right there at the threshold. I don't know exactly what happens, but he's not dead. And he's crawling towards his car. Paul sees that he's not dead. She sees that he's not dead. And so she gets on her riding lawnmower and runs over his head. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I read about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. God, of course. Of course she has a sharpened crucifix. And of course she uses a lawnmower. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland. They just ripped it right off. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> they were like, oh, you're not going to put this in your movie? Well, we'll put it in ours. So Buster is dead. And Paul looks every bit as crushed as he was the first, fourth, and sixteenth time that his salvation was thwarted by Annie just being a little too ahead of him. She's standing at the top of the stairs, and she's kind of gone back into that sort of sweet Annie voice, and she tells him not to worry that this was inevitable. That's, I mean, I'm assuming she's referring to somebody finding them out. She's smart enough to know that killing Buster means that more cops are going to follow. Her time is, is up. She explains to him that she's already loaded her revolver with two bullets. She tells him she's going to shoot him and then herself. So then she leaves to go get said gun and Paul just starts frantically looking around for anything that might help him in this situation and he spots that can of lighter fluid from earlier in the film but she comes back too fast for him to grab it. She reappears at the top of the stairs with a syringe in one hand and her revolver in the other and she starts slowly walking down the stairs and she tells Paul again that she loves him. But then Paul does something that Annie did not see coming. I love you. I love you too. He tells her he loves her too, which stops her right in her tracks. Because apparently the way that you get Annie to stop is to show her affection. So he says he knows that they both have to die and they both have to die so that misery can live. But he has to finish the book before they can kill themselves. So now he's bought himself some time. It works. Uh, She turns around. She walks back up the basement stairs. She gets the wheelchair. And Paul grabs the fluid at this point and stuffs it down his pants, which, as we know, is where Paul's magic pocket is. (laughs) (laughs) Then she pushes the wheelchair into view and tells Paul she'll fix him something to eat. Now, does she make him climb back up the stairs by himself? You know, I actually don't know. We do not see it. The next time we see Paul, he's back in the bedroom at the typewriter. So I have no idea if she made him just drag himself up the stairs. Either she's letting him lie down there to think about what he's done, or she just expects him to drag himself up the stairs, which I guess maybe he does. Hey, he's been he's been doing that Jane Fonda typewriter workout. So we're back upstairs in Paul's room, and he's at his typewriter, and he's finishing Misery's return. He tells Annie that once it's done, he needs his three ritualistic celebratory things. And this is where his ritualistic nature actually saves him. Knowing everything about him as a writer, she knows that he needs a cigarette, a match to light it. And you need one glass of champagne. Dom Perignon. 
he's exploiting her fandom at this point in a very effective way. He's, he's about to finish and he calls Annie in right at the end and he tells her to get the champagne. It's time. So she goes to the kitchen and she sets out a tray and on it she puts a single champagne glass, the bottle of Perignon, the cigarette and a match and she puts the revolver in her cardigan pocket and then carries everything to his room. She sets it down in front of him and asks if she did good to which he replies that she did perfectly except they need two glasses this time instead of one because she'll be drinking the champagne with him. I love that he says except for one thing and you see how crestfallen she is. She's not mad. She's just very sad that she got his ritual wrong. But right. then as soon as he says no we're going to need two glasses because you're going to be drinking with me. She is elated. Again Kathy Bates with her face is making you connect with this woman that you're supposed to hate. I'm got, I just got chills thinking about her face because that's one of the faces from the movie that I remember. So she goes out she gets the second glass and Paul delivers the best fuck you as I guess a final boy has ever delivered on film you know not to discredit Jesse Walsh but Paul Sheldon really is the best <laughs> final boy he throws the manuscript on the floor the, the whole book Misery's Return throws it on the floor douses the whole thing in lighter fluid and then he's got the last chapter in his hand covered it in lighter fluid and he's got the match in his other hand that Annie gave to him she comes back in and she sees him well obviously she's a little confused but she's also stunned she's not talking and so before she can get any words out Paul says to her you're never going to know who Misery's real father is you're never going to know if they get reunited you're not going to know who she ends up with and then he lights the last chapter on fire tosses it onto the rest of the manuscript which bursts into flame and says that he learned it from her Bucky rock star <laughs> yes very much a rock star in the book paul does not burn it paul burns a stack of blank paper he pretends to burn it i actually prefer that he burns it i think mm. it's better for him it's very cathartic but i actually like in the book that he doesn't burn it because at least he's come out of this with something right i mean obviously he comes out of it with his life well and i but i wonder though because if he hadn't burned the book and i don't know because i, I haven't read misery but um does he publish the Misery book that he wrote? Does I don't, he publish Misery's Return? I feel like, yes, but I don't remember. Because mm. um, I, I wonder, like, if he publishes it in that story, he resurrects Misery. So is that, like, everything he went through was to stop him from giving up on his livelihood, you know? It's interesting. I, I'm very much looking forward to... Oh, yes, he does. He does publish it. Set to become an international bestseller, yes. He publishes. Wow. Definitely changes the ending, for sure, in a big way. I mean, not just you know, with those details, but I think the the tone and the the general feeling that you get from the ending of the film, I think I think it changes it a lot. Oh yeah. Well, so in this version, he he does burn the book. She predictably completely freaks out. She collapses to the floor, trying desperately to beat the flames down, during which time Sheldon uses the strength that he's gathered and all of that practice to lift the typewriter off the desk and brings it down hard over her head. And we get a lengthy, very satisfying fight scene between Paul and Annie. Um, I think it satisfies in a couple of different ways. We see very few physical fights between a male and a female character where the characters are similarly matched. Um, that happens, I think, so very rarely. So that's really nice. Normally, it's, you know, the final girl fending off the killer. This is different. This is two people on equal ground, both desperately fighting one another for survival. And it is such a compelling, well-choreographed 
scene. It starts with the typewriter. She collapses, but this isn't enough to actually knock her out. And her arm, her like sweater sleeve catches on fire. And that just kind of like quickly like brings her out of it. And she's smacking it out. And she stands up and just lunges at Paul, uh, who's still obviously sitting in his wheelchair. And they both kind of strangle each other. And she has wheeled him backward into the window. uh, And she screams that she's going to kill him. And this is the one time when Annie actually cusses because she calls him a cocksucker, which is also a satisfying moment, you know, because you've been wanting her to do it the whole time. Yeah. He stops strangling her and she's close enough in proximity to him that he's able to grab her head in his hands and he starts shoving his thumbs into her eyes, which makes her retreat. But when she does this, she pulls out the gun and she just shoots him in the shoulder. We know there are two bullets in this gun and she's just used one of them. The shot blows him back into the wheelchair and he grabs his arm and he screams, but then just immediately lunges and hurls himself with some sort of like miracle inertia out of his wheelchair chair and he just tackles her that forces her arm down and she fires the final bullet in the gun at at just nothing so they wrestle a lot more and when he finally gains the higher ground he grabs the remnants of the burned misery's return from the floor and starts stuffing them into her mouth and he goes you wanna eat it it was amazing it was so amazing it was just i cannot stress enough how much i love this fight reiner and goldman crafted such effective tension we have been waiting for this for so long it's just oh it's fantastic so she fends him off and the fight continues until she finally trips like they, they kind of get back up again they're fighting some more and she trips and falls head first onto the edge of the typewriter and everything goes quiet Paul drags himself out into the hallway, but Annie's not quite done because, you know, we know the rules. We know that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Billy Loomis. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She tackles him and they wrestle all the way into the den where Paul manages to grab a hold of this iron, like wrought iron door stopper shaped like Misery the Pig. And he slams it hard into her face, killing her undoubtedly. She is dead. So in the book, Paul does hit her in the head with the typewriter. But after that, she gets him down and she runs to find a weapon but she trips on the typewriter and she actually cracks her skull on the mantelpiece so I think that they must be in a living room or something at this point because I don't think there was a fireplace in his bedroom I do remember he sets the manuscript on fire there is the part where he shoves the burning pages into her mouth while he's doing this she calls him a dirty bird (laughs) but her mouth is full of paper and so she says dirt burnt (laughs) and calling him a cocksucker amazing trying to choke out the words dirty bird through (laughs) burnt paper while you are dying yeah even more so some police arrive at the house they're looking for the state trooper that she killed before he tries to warn them saying i don't think she's dead she might be somewhere in the house and they're like no and what you find out is that annie has actually gone through a window and goes to the barn to get a chainsaw to kill paul but succumbed (laughs) to her head injury and died while she was out there i like that yeah, so she she didn't die in the house with him. She died away from him in the barn, but she was like, I need my hockey mask and a chainsaw. <laughs> so. I mean, I can definitely see how the version we got in the film clearly is a little bit better suited for cinema. So I can see why they changed it, but wow, that's really, I like that a lot. <laughs> Dirty bird. Dirty bird. <laughs> it's an important phrase to Annie Wilkes. Yes, very. Mm-hmm. Her last words were dirt burnt. Yeah. But we're not done. We get to find out what happens afterwards. So we fade back into New York City. It's a year and a half later. Paul Sheldon is walking down the street, dapper looking, goes into a posh restaurant. He's got a cane because not too long ago, somebody hobbled him. 
but obviously it wasn't permanent. He is able to walk even with a limp or a cane. You know, I mean, like he can get around. He's good. But he's meeting with his agent, Marcia Sindel. They're discussing his new book, The Higher Education of J. Philip Stone. And uh, what we're guessing is that it's the book he wrote at Silver Creek. But Marcia says, you know, you've actually got a shot at winning awards for this one. And he says, you know, I really don't care because I wrote this for me and nobody else. And then he tells her that his experience with Annie Wilkes actually helped him in a really real way. Marcia says, you know, hey, have you considered writing about what happened to you? It would be cathartic. And I think that I probably would if I were an author or I would do something to get it out. But he just makes a joke and very sarcastically says, well, it kind of sounds like you want me to bring up the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Ha ha ha. And she's like, I kind of thought you were over it. Right then, Annie comes around the corner, pushing a birthday cake cart and staring at Paul as he tells Marcia that he doesn't think anyone could ever get over it. And It's frightening because here's Annie and she's right in front of him. She stops at the table. It's actually the waitress. She does say, are you Paul Sheldon? And then she says that she's his number one fan, which I don't know about you, but I probably would have shoved the birthday cake in her face and (laughs) hobbled my way out of the restaurant. But instead, he's very gracious. And what he does is he tells her that it's very sweet of her and he gives her the most awkward smile anyone's ever given anybody. And the scene fades to black and the credits roll. To the tune of uh, I'll Be Seeing You by Liberace, which I thought was just such a fantastic choice. There couldn't have been anything better unless there was a song called Dirt Burt. (laughs) Oh, man. So that's misery. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I would like to pose the question to both you and also my 10 listeners. Um, (laughs) And I know we talked a little bit about, you know, your experience with Bruce Connell, but... um, what was your most memorable encounter with a celebrity of which you were or are a big fan? I don't actually have a lot. So I'll tell you another story about what happened at the convention. If you're a fan of Supernatural, then you know who the two sheriffs are. Brianna Buckmaster and Kim Rhodes play the two sheriffs. And um, there was a photo op. So we get the photo op and it's Jay and I, but also our friends Dustin and Jeff. Instead of just having Dustin and Jeff in one photo and Jay and I in one photo, we look at the women and we say, can we all four just take two pictures? And they're all about it. They're like, hell yeah, come get in the picture with us. Woo. And so like, I got to take two whole pictures with the sheriffs from Supernatural. We were talking the whole time, laughing, smiling. And it was just, it was a really cool feeling. So that's been one of the better experiences. It sounds like that convention was just an absolute blast. I haven't met a lot of celebrities in my life either. Everybody in my personal life knows my favorite celebrity encounter, of course, will always be the time that I met Jeffrey Combs. Well, the time that I spoke to Jeffrey Combs on the phone while I was in the bathtub. That's the one that I remember. Yeah. And then several years later when I met him at the the Comic-Con up here, but I do subscribe to the philosophy that one should never meet one's heroes uh, for the most part, because I think it's so easy for us to forget that the people whose art we love, whose work we love, are just people. And I also think that it's easy for uh, people on the other side of that to also forget, you know, that their fans are are also people, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's an odd thing, celebrity. I've always kind of felt really uncomfortable with it. Being a celebrity yourself? No. (laughs) Being around (laughs) celebrities or being a fan of of something or someone. And maybe that's because I saw Misery at such a young age. I don't know, man. Misery makes me really introspective. Like, it really just, it gets in my head. Stephen King's really good at that. And that's what's good about his writing. And the reason I think that he writes so descriptively Mm -hmm. is so that you're not only reading about these people, you kind of become them. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. I am so 
so glad that you joined me to talk about misery tonight. As you know, it's the first time I've ever had a guest. I had a lot of fun. It was I'm really glad that you invited me and that that you let me do this because like I said, it's my first time I've ever done this and I just I had a blast. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. To anyone out there who may be listening to this, I sincerely hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you enjoyed Bruce's company as much as I have. I mentioned at the start that I had a couple of exciting announcements regarding this podcast. Firstly, I will from now on be referring to it as a podcast. (laughs) And maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal to anyone else, but it's a big deal to me. Secondly, I now have a Discord community and a Patreon campaign. Now, I want to be realistic about this. I don't have high hopes for the Patreon campaign right now. I don't have a very large listener base and I'm not currently actively trying to build a listener base in any way at all. This is all still so new and a lot of it is experimental for me and I'm just having a lot of fun kind of getting the ball rolling. But I did go ahead and create the Patreon campaign. You can visit that page at patreon.com forward slash final girl confessions. You can also find an open invitation to my Discord channel about halfway down that page just beneath the Anchor FM link to this podcast. Confessions of a Final Girl will always be free no matter what happens in the future. I will never charge anyone to listen to me spoil the endings of horror movies on the internet. And my Discord community is open to anyone who would like to join it. The Patreon campaign is primarily in place so that hopefully someday I can afford to comfortably upgrade some of my equipment and improve upon the quality of the podcast as I continue to figure out exactly what it is and how it works. But the Discord community, I had a lot of fun setting that up and I did so with the hope of eventually creating a small community of horror fans like myself. And it's just another way for us to continue these conversations off the record. So I hope to see you there. Uh, If for some reason the invite to the Discord on Patreon doesn't work, as Discord invites are wont to do, just email me at the usual address and I'll send you an invite directly. I want to thank Bruce again so much for being here with me tonight. I had a really great time. As far as my next episode is concerned, I've been feeling very much in the mood for some Ty West films, so I may be talking about one of those. I don't know. It's autumn. Feels kind of like a Ty West time. I hope you all are enjoying the first few days of my favorite month as much as I am. And until next time, creep it real. (laughs) 